0: In the corporate world, arguably, there is no shortage of attention on climate change. Investors no doubt play a significant role in promoting positive changes to environmental impact. But given the momentum on this topic, it may be asked how might an organization translate that attention into real action and real results? Hello, I'm your host, Paul Ties. And on this episode of If Win, I'm joined by Holly Schmidt. Global Solutions Director of Sustainability, Resilience, and Climate Response for the Americas region at Jacobs. Holly and I discussed the need to put talk into action when it comes to sustainability, and she shares what she has learned in her career on how to help organizations achieve tangible results and avoid pitfalls in their sustainability and resiliency efforts. Well, Holly, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to talking with you about sustainability and resilience. And uh, the the title of this podcast is From Ambition to Action. So we're going to talk a little bit about not only what sustainability and resilience are, but how do we help organizations move beyond just talking about it to actually doing something about it. So thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here all right
0: fantastic well so you know as we were preparing for our talk you know you were telling me a little bit about how there can be some confusion or conflation where people think sustainability and resilience sort of mean the same thing but they really don't can you help us unpack a little bit you know what's the difference between sustainability and resilience
1: Sure, and I deal with this question a lot and clarifying between the two, because we're really trying to achieve both. And when we talk about sustainability, we're really talking about how can we be more efficient in the way that we develop in our planet. Um, So I think about the three environments, the physical environment, which includes natural disasters, the physical infrastructure, everything in our physical environment, Mm -hmm. the social environment, and then the business environment. So when we're operating in those environments, how can we be more sustainable? How can we achieve net zero, net positive outcomes? And how can we lessen the impacts of of our actions? So that's, that's how I think about sustainability, what we're doing to those environments. Resilience is about what those environments throw back at us, whether it's a hurricane or drought and drying up of our aquifers, whether that's a pandemic, you know, we, we all really learned a lot through the pandemic on what resilience really means, um, you know, whether that's the impact to our supply chain and, and things that impact our operational efficiency. How can we be strong and hardened against those shocks and stressors? How can we alleviate those vulnerabilities? So, you know, resilience is really about how can we be prepared for those, those types of threats to, to our environments? And you really want them to work hand in hand. We want to achieve resilience through sustainable solutions. So for instance, you know you could have a seawall that helps with sea level rise and impacting surge, or you can build a naturalized living shoreline. A naturalized living shoreline is a sustainable way of achieving resilience. Then when we look at sustainability and, and say being more water efficient, where we're introducing water recycling and water reuse, that's actually introducing resilience into your water supply. And so those two things should work hand in hand. And I encourage our teams and our clients to think about them as zippered up together.
0: No, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. You know, so I think a lot of like what we see, and and maybe this has been kind of pushed by the ESG mentality, you know, an investor level and whatnot. But There's a lot of talk, obviously, about sustainability and resilience, and this kind of gets to the heart of of our our episode today. But there's a lot of talk, a lot of attention, but talk is cheap, as they say. You know, what are some of the organizational pitfalls that, you know, that can lead to inertia, and how do organizations uh, overcome those?
1: Well, and that really goes to the title of our podcast, bridging that gap between ambition and what you're committing to and what you're saying publicly you're going to do and your intent and actually driving that into your business and being able to demonstrate and measure and prove out your actions to get the credit for that. And, and this is a big space of where I operate. You know, I, I deal with the C-suite, the leadership levels of our clients, and it really needs to come from the top down. So the good news is that people are out there making their ambitions and their commitments known, but then it really needs to roll through the organization to effectively take hold. And so, you know, two of the greatest things of inertia that I see is the business as usual mentality. And, you know, we've always done it this way. This is our most profitable way of doing it. Why should we change? And kind of penetrating what I call that dense clay layer of your organization So you've got this top leadership saying, we're committed to doing this. We want you to figure it out. You have a lot of mid and young level staffers that are champions of sustainability and resilience. And they're trying to figure out, you know, how from the middle out can we kind of impact this? But it's really getting through that business as usual, dense clay layer and saying, you know what? We have to change the way that we're doing our our work. And that is driven by changing your governance structure, changing your mandates, changing your incentives, changing your accountability structure, and how you're enforcing it and tracking it. And that is really a ripple effect that goes through the very heart of your business operations. And I like to think of it as, you know, I've I've been around for a while. I've been at Jacobs for 23 years and practicing for 28. I remember when the health movement and the safety movement really took hold in the early 2000s when safety became a huge cultural shift for many, many organizations and, and Jacobs is one of them. And that really drove into the business. We we started every meeting with a safety moment. We had lots of different safety awareness campaigns. There was just a huge push, but it took about five years really for that to to penetrate and take hold. And I think that's what we're seeing now with sustainability and resilience. Hmm. Well on that topic of
0: you know incentivizing behavioral change and action. I, I assume that companies, uh, service providers, are seeing greater sustainability requirements come through from their clients. You know, on project proposals. Uh, if so, is that have you found that to be a driver for authentic action on sustainability, or does it just tend to be a creator of more p- paperwork and reporting?
1: Well, it really depends on the organization, but. But one thing I really see happening is that the financial markets have shifted and they are really starting to embrace and adopt and understand the value of sustainable and resilient approaches and and ways of behavior. Once that financial market starts shifting, then we've also got what's called a scope three and part of our ESG, which really looks at the upstream and the downstream behavior of your organization. What are your feedstocks? What are inbound to your organization? Who are those vendors that are providing it? And how do you green up that system? How is your own operational footprint? And then what's happening downstream? What are you doing with your waste streams and your byproducts? And how are you distributing your products? And because of that kind of holistic um, you know, web, if you will, where your organization is in the center, but people that you touch on a daily basis are also getting those pressures, you're really seeing that penetrate, I think much more holistically. Some companies and organizations are better at actually achieving action than others, but I see a systematic pressure across all of the markets, and um, you know some are more early adopters, some are later adopters, but they're all being pulled into that space.
0: Hmm. so you you talked in a piece you authored earlier this year. And I'll I'll jump to the punchline, but then I'm going to ask the question. But you talk about this concept, return on perception, and I really like I like the I like the poetry of it. But you you authored this piece, and it was on developing resilient, and sustainable infrastructure. And you wrote, "We need to expand the focus from solely return on investment to include return on perception." Can you unpack for us? You know, what is return on perception, and why is it important?
1: Well, historically, and I've worked across many large clients, they make their decisions on first cost. What is the first cost of this solution and this action? What's the first cost of the build? How do we get that return on investment and that first cost as low as possible and as profitable as possible and, and, you know, get that return quickly? But there's a huge return on perception that is harder to monetize and put a financial value on. And those are things like health and wellness, um, worker welfare issues, retention and attraction uh, ability. What does the public think of your brand when they see your developments and your footprint on our planet? And so... Those have value. And we've we've worked we work with a company called Symmetrica that, that Jacobs is involved in. And I work across my technical teams and say, how do we measure the things that are non-financial? And how do we start to talk about how there is that non-financial value in that return on perception? So if if you have a development and the public sees solar panels on top of the the parking garage, there's going to be a positive perception there. Yes, you're doing green energy and renewable energy, but the public sees that. Um, When you walk into a lobby of an organization and you see plants and a palette, a color palette that's warm and inviting, you have a feeling about that. You have a a perception on that company that really impacts your behavior. And so we encourage what we call the triple bottom line, which is profit. Clearly, we're, we're out to help for Jacobs to be profitable and for our clients to be profitable. But there's also people and planet. And we really want to achieve all of that trifecta of those three items, both in the perception and and return on investment and non-financial return on investment. So there's a lot more kind of scientific ways now to measure those intangible items that we're really paying attention to.
0: Hmm. Now, let's go back to the the dense clay layer that you talked about, that kind of we've always done it this way kind of mentality. Yeah, and, and one of the blockers, you know, is is human behavior and you know human perspective on how to do things. You know, and that necessitates change management. So you know, what are some change management best practices that organizations can take to get their teams to really embrace you know sustainability and resilience efforts and bring those to life?
1: Well, most of them that are highly effective, are in the pre-design or pre-project stage. And so having an organization to start to make their public commitments, you know, their mm-hmm. performance standards, their key performance indicators that they're working towards, you know, so Jacobs has a net zero by 2040 goal of how we operate as an organization, looking at design guidelines and technical guidelines and RFP language that goes out to contractors or vendors. All of that can be baked into those pre-project, pre-design guidance so that it makes it into the budget. Because what we find is that highly resilient and sustainable solutions do cost more typically. Mm-hmm. Normally we see about a 5 to 15% increase in the capex of the project. But when you do a life cycle cost analysis, not just a first cost, when you look at the whole entire lifespan and the efficiencies and the hardening that you get from being more sustainable and resilient has a huge compelling business case. The payoff is good. The risk avoidance is greater. Um, Your overall operations and maintenance, OPEX costs are much, much lower. And and then you combine those non-financial benefits that we were talking about earlier. And that really helps move the needle. And I've been involved in projects and programs where we've been able to influence that Mm -hmm. space So we did a rebuild for Tyndall Air Force Base um, on the panhandle of Florida after Hurricane Michael. And we modified all of that pre-design guidance. So when the design packages went out for, you know, 35% design all the way to 100% design, all that was baked in and the budgets were there to accommodate that gross up of the OPEX. And so it can be done, and I've done it where the budget's in place, the project's in design, and we go in and we do an overlay analysis to say, with the current budget, what can we do? Or with an increase of 2%, 5%, what can we do? And we're able to change that design. Um, there was just an article that came out from Jacobs talking about the Jacobs relationship with Fujifilm and um, the biopharma manufacturing facility they're doing in the Carolinas. And I helped lead the team to do a sustainability overlay for that project. And we were able to move the project into a lead gold campus compared to the kind of design to code that it was in before. And so here they are building this beautiful facility that's much more sustainable and resilient than it was initially envisioned by the client. And the client had come to us and said, we need to change what we're doing right now. And so you know, we mobilized and came in and, and really changed that. So there has to be a genuine appetite on the client side and a genuine appetite and desire on our side to be those change managers.
0: Hmm, interesting now this next question and uh you know i had heard this uh it was kind of a little sound bite but it was something i thought was fascinating that jacobs had worked on and so i'll give you an opportunity here to brag on this but the question is can you share some examples where companies are taking creative and tangible action to address sustainability challenges and The example I'm citing is, I understand Jacobs is uh, working with a premium tequila manufacturer, Patron, to turn agave byproduct into cardboard to solve uh, their supply chain issues. So that sounds really fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit about how companies are are taking these like creative steps to address sustainability challenges?
1: Sure, and I absolutely love to talk about the Patron project. They're a great client, an amazing facility, They're owned by the Bacardi Corporation, and and we've done work for Bacardi in the past. So we did a holistic and comprehensive master plan for all of the Patron enterprise in central Mexico. And as part of that, we looked at their supply chain and where their risks were and how the pandemic really impacted their supply chain and where those pain points were. And one of them was in cardboard. So they were getting pinched on their supply chain. And so at times that would really disrupt their operations and being able to ship out their product. Then we looked at their immediate operational footprint and how they were actually manufacturing tequila. As you mentioned, agave is their main sugar source. And I've had the pleasure of seeing how their premium tequila is made. It's a beautiful process. And looking at their main waste stream, which was the agave, what was left of the agave, it's called bagasse. And it kind of looks like, like a coconut husk, right? They have lots and lots and lots of that. So we had our partners PA consulting with us on that project. And when we identified the the shortage of cardboard in their supply chain, the robust amount of waste stream with the, the bagasse and what that bagasse could be, how you could create value for it. They called it a waste valorization study. And PA is brilliant. They came up with, I think, over 200 different options for using their waste streams and turning those waste into value, one of which is retreating the water so that you can use the water again, not necessarily for their products, but for other functions. And it was determined that there's a high likelihood that they can make cardboard out of this agave byproduct. So that still has to go into the R&D phase, but the goal would be to attract a synergistic industry that could be Co-located or located near the Patron manufacturing facilities, take that byproduct, make cardboard, and then provide that back to Patron. And what that does is a couple things. It de-risks their supply chain for cardboard. It creates a circular economy. It reduces the cost of their cardboard because now they're providing the cardboard manufacturer with the feedstock, which is their byproduct. They have sustainability goals, which is to increase the recycled content in their cardboard. So this achieves that. And it also gets them to net zero on that waste stream, which they're already composting it. But now they are using it to provide additional value back to the company. So those are all of those types of connections that we want to make once we understand that client's full operational footprint.
0: No, that's wonderful. And the concept of the circular economy is just is so cool. You know how you're able to create kind of a a self-sustaining model, you know, just by being creative and, uh, you know, attacking the problem in a different in a different way.
1: One other thing I'll just mention is it also helps them decarbonize their supply chain. So we're no longer trucking all of this cardboard back and forth. So we are you know decreasing those emissions as part of that solution as well. No, that's fantastic.
0: Now, it seems like everywhere you turn, you know, companies are touting their sustainability efforts, of course, there's a lot of a lot of interest. But are some industries better outfitted to make significant improvements in sustainability
1: endeavors? That's a great question. And I'm so excited. And part of what I love about my job at Jacobs is I get to work across all of the markets. So our infrastructure group, our federal and environmental solutions group, our advanced facilities group across all lines of business, all geographies in the Americas. And I work with some of our international um, groups as well. And so I really have had the privilege of understanding that cross market comparison in this space. So I've been in this job for about two and a half years and. Clearly, the corporate commercial private markets are at the head of the game, you know, they are the most progressive. They have the most flexibility, I think, to reallocate funds, to do R&D, to really understand that brand enhancement connection between being sustainable and resilient, using smart technologies, being savvy business people. And so, you know, Patrona is a great example of that. They're a privately held corporation. But, you know, we're doing work for Microsoft and, you know, for other large-scale corporate clients that are really very genuinely intent on moving that needle. But I also work with the Department of Defense, and we're doing a big program right now with the DOD called Engineering with Nature, where we're looking at what are these natural disasters that are threatening the mission assurance of our Department of Defense installations, and how can we use nature-based solutions to resolve those? I was just in Hawaii all last week. Um, That's a tough gig, but I I suffered through it. And we were in Kauai looking at a naval installation and severe erosion at the top of a ridge where a lot of sensitive equipment is being located. And how can we fix that through nature-based solutions versus walls and and concrete and pipes? And so we're seeing a lot of legislation and mandates and recommendations coming out of the federal government and incentivizing both federal and non-federal entities to be more sustainable and resilient and to be aware that you know, climate change is real. And and it's my personal belief that we shouldn't politicize this topic. It's there's science and there's engineering and and Jacobs is, you know, the number one ranked engineering firm in the world. We work with brilliant people that study modeling and predictive analyses and all of these things that we really wanna be aware of. But then, you know, I, I look at the transportation market and we've got statewide departments of transportations or DOTs coming out with climate analyses and vulnerability assessments. I've been working with the rail industry and our rail market, and they're looking at, you know, how can they combat landslides and washouts by developing better along their linear infrastructure corridors? How can they look at enhancing their sit yards and decarbonizing? Uh, We've been working with transit companies and Jacobs delivered a project where, for the New Jersey Transit Authority, after Katrina, they went down because of lack of power, and so now we helped broker a deal between a solar developer and providing backup for that transit system so whether it's airports and particularly water based ports who are are getting flooded they're all really seeing the fact that they need to introduce solar they need to introduce the redundancy in power and water so that's not just a sustainability issue it's also a resilience issue and really how do we how do we flip on its head the problem and say this is how we've done it in the past but this is how that infrastructure has fared and we've all seen the state of the infrastructure you know in in the united states i think we're at about a c minus according to the american society of civil engineers so how do we do it differently so that we are more sustainable and resilient moving forward and and most of the clients that i'm dealing with are asking about it we just had a mining client come to us and say we're expanding and we want to be a 10 out of 10 from a sustainability perspective which I've never had a mining client say that, you know. So it was very refreshing that they want to be at the forefront of their market. It's really penetrating into all the markets that we touch. Some just a little more aggressively than others. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic.
0: So, my last question for you, any final thoughts on what companies can do better to turn ambition into action when it comes to their sustainability and resilience programs?
1: They need to fund it. Just like just like funding Projects need additional budgets. Companies need additional budgets to change that pre project, pre design space. You know, Jacobs has set up a corporate office of sustainability that's led by Jan Wallstrom, who just won the Sustainability Leader of the uh, Year award from Environmental Analyst. And so, making that organizational structural change do you have a chief resilience officer, a chief sustainability officer, a corporate sustainability and resilience office? I sit as a global solutions director for sustainability, resilience and climate response for the Americas, and I have three counterparts. And so we're really looking at how do we lay liaison with corporate to make sure our commitments really are, you know, we have that implement implementation strategy in place. Is it feasible? Can we actually achieve those metrics that are out there? And it's also empowering the people who are passionate about it internally. So Jacobs has a lot of communities of practice around decarbonization, nature based solutions, green and sustainable buildings, net zero nature positive. You know, you start to break down what are the components of sustainability and the components of resilience and getting those people who are passionate about it in that space. I think it's it's impacting your sales organization. If you do have a sales organization, Jacobs sees that as a differentiator and a win strategy. So how do I go and talk to our client account managers and understand what their clients may need in this space? But at the end of the day, you have to have budget and funding that's behind it. I know Jacob's just backed a $500 million green bond, and that's going to help us with our decarbonization strategy for our corporate footprint and with some of our diversification and inclusion KPIs. Green lending has better terms. So if you can demonstrate that you're going to be more sustainable in your actions, you can get better lending terms, you can get lower interest rates, and that many times can offset the capital, the increase in your CapEx. I also work with a group I'm calling Financial Solutions, and they're looking at what, how do you get grants, what's the legislation that's coming down that you can qualify for, um, how can you attract private equity and public-private partnerships, and then looking at all of the funding streams and how do you do that financial strategy to really set that project up for success. And just working with some brilliant economists that we have at Jacobs that that do that kind of work. Because lots of times our clients know they need to be more sustainable and resilient. They don't know what the project definition is and they don't know how to fund it and implement it. So we can come in in that space and help them with the project definition, the strategy, the funding, financing and implementation roadmap And then that really helps, again, bridge that gap between ambition and action. And then I guess in closing, what I would say is that understanding that there's an ego-based approach to development and there's an eco-based approach to development. And my background is as a landscape architect. So we were taught to design with nature, to design with the land. And, you know, we can do anything we want. We can build a city on Mars eventually. But I think if we can all realize what would be the most lightest touch that we could have in our environment, how do we redevelop instead of greenfield development? How do we let eco lead us in our solutions and understanding the value of nature as infrastructure for stormwater management, for coastal resilience, for recharging our aquifers, for the ecosystem services of cleaner air, cleaner water, shade that helps reduce the heat islanding effect? You know, there are so many benefits to incorporating nature into what we're doing, into our cities, into our conservation areas and and driving how we develop. And I, I was talking to a friend of mine and I told him, you know, oh, I'm, I'm out to save the planet. And He said, Holly, the planet's going to survive. It's humanity that we have to save. You know, and so really, how do we tackle that? It's a it's a big, huge topic. But Jacobs is not only in a position to impact the way that we operate as an enterprise, but the impact that we have by helping our clients be more sustainable and resilient in their solutions is massive. Billions and billions of dollars worth of projects that we touch. So if we can transform as a company and deliver all of that to our clients and bake it into every solution, that starts to really move the needle and that's what gets me really excited about what I do. Mm.
0: Well, Holly, thank you so much for sitting down with me and, and walking through uh, sustainability and resilience and you know, giving us some perspectives on how to turn ambition into action. I think at the risk of being cheeky, a key takeaway that I had is you've got to put your money where your mouth is. So um, I really appreciate you uh, sharing with us some of the exciting things that are going on at Jacobs and what they're doing. And uh, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Absolutely. I love doing it. Thanks so much.